For those of you that don't know me, haven't met me, I see some new faces in here. It's fun. Uh, Jordan Howell. I'm a men's ministry leader on staff with Salt Company. And man, I'm just floored at the fact that we only have one Salt Company left this semester. It's just mind-blowing to me how fast this semester has gone, but it's been fun to, to worship with you guys, to see you grow, to see you grow in how you worship and how you engage in community. So uh, thanks for making it out tonight. Know that it's uh, taking up one of your nights of commitment right before break that you could have been using to study or hang out with friends, but you know what? I believe you're at the best place you could possibly be wholeheartedly. You're here on purpose and with purpose, and God has something to say to you tonight and to say to me tonight through his word. So uh, we have a lot to cover in a little amount of time. So I'm going to give you guys high level where we're going. We're going to be talking about relationships, specifically within relationships, this word submission. Ooh. As you hear the word submit or submission, or you even begin to think about relationships, your blood likely begins to boil. Tensions start to rise because you have seen this go wrong. You've seen it taught wrong. You've seen it lived out wrong. And the reason I know this is because statistics show it. Everybody in this room has seen a divorce, whether, whether it's your own parents, whether it's friends' parents, a family friend, 50% of all marriages in the United States will end in divorce. One every 13 seconds. Chances are, if you're in this room, you've been hurt by your parents. Uh, you may have trouble trusting your parents. Uh, no statistic needed to say that there's no such thing as a perfectly behaved child. We all know that. But research studies do consistently show that strict or authoritarian child raising actually produces kids with lower self-esteem and worse behavior. Maybe you come from a, a home that raised you in a Christian home, but their strict authoritarian style provoked you to anger. Good chance. Um, lastly, we have leadership influences in our lives that we dislike or struggle to respect. Whether that be teachers, coaches, uh, bosses, if you're in the workforce, uh, Looking at statistics on the workforce in America, 67% of employees are not engaged or are actively disengaged. This means that two-thirds of our employees in America are going through the motions, they're not passionate about what they're doing, and some of them are even like spending working hours on Facebook or shopping on Amazon. <laughs> this costs our economy 450 to $500 billion every year. And the root of that is a broken relationship between boss and employer. The question I have for you tonight is, what would happen if your relationships ended up looking just like the ones going on around you? What if you were a statistic? Would you be satisfied? Beyond that, would God be glorified if you became a statistic? Paul writes to Christians in Ephesus. We're going to open up to Ephesians 5, verse 22. If you want to head there, uh, that's where we're going to start. Paul writes to Christians in Ephesus on this topic of submission and relationships because Christians were being accused of disrupting and destroying society. Christians were taking their, their freedom, their love in following Jesus, and they're disrupting social norms. 
And Paul is writing to Ephesian believers to say, hey, your, your faith matters and your faith impacts your relationships. So the question is, what role does our faith play in our relationships? We're going to start in verse 22. It'll be up on the screen. Otherwise, if you want to pull your Bibles out, that's where we'll be. So, verse 22, Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Most of us have probably heard this before, whether we've heard it quoted or um, taught over us, and man, I said it from the beginning, it doesn't sit well. Especially for the ladies in the room, you hear submit and you're like, nope, not me. So before we even dig in really to this text, I want to talk through two things. What submission is and what headship is. Because if we miss those, we're going to miss the text entirely. So what submission is not is where I'm going to start. Submission is not inferiority. It's not saying that you have less value or that you're less capable or coherent. Submission is not saying you're a servant, that you have to remain silent. Submission is not following every desire of your husband, nor is it even obedience to a husband. And lastly, it's definitely not license for husbands to force submission. Hear me on that. Submission, the actual definition is a willing, voluntary placing under to support and empower. In this context, we see wives submitting to husbands. So the definition from a biblical standpoint here is submission is the calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it through according to her gifts. When we think about the word submission, we oftentimes think it means weakness. But what if submission actually was a sign of great strength and maturity? Because it is. Jesus Christ himself was submissive. You don't have to go very far in the Gospels to see that Jesus was a man who submitted himself under the will of the Father. Does that make Jesus weak? No, it, it makes Jesus actually strong. It shows his maturity because he's willing to say, I'm placing myself under the authority of my father to support and empower his mission. He can be trusted. And so when we unpack submission, I want to just make sure we're clear on what submission looks like. Uh, the question is, who submits to who? In this text, it's wives submit to your own husbands. Hear me. Wives submit to your own husbands. That's not women submit to men. We got it? Clear on that? It's not women submit to men. It's not girlfriends submit to boyfriends. In this context, it's wives submit to husbands. It's within the context of marriage that we see Paul addressing. With what motive? Why, why submit? The end of verse 22 says, as to the Lord the motive behind your submission is actually not because you have the perfect husband. There's no, no such thing as a perfect husband. 
It's because you serve a perfect God and he has called you to live out your role as a wife, your obedience matters. That is the, the motive behind your submission is, man, God has given me this role as a wife and I want to be obedient to God. And then the question is, in what manner? And this, this gets sticky. Uh, we see it unpacked in verse 24. It says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also sh- wives should submit in everything to their husbands. How does the church submit to Christ? In purity and in faith. In purity and in faith. So when we see this call for wives submitting to your husbands in everything, think in purity and in faith. So if your husband is leading you down a path of sin and destruction, you are not called to submit to sin and destruction. You submit to God first and foremost. We're all under the authority of our Heavenly Father. But the church submits to Christ in purity and in faith. And with that comes this uncomfortable wrestle of sometimes it doesn't look like what we like. It doesn't fit our preferences. And many times it can be extremely uncomfortable. But as we trust in Christ, trust in his word, take him at his truth, we know that we can move forward in obedience. One of the most incredible ways that I have seen submission lived out in my marriage uh, is through my wife, obviously Ellie. She, I cannot speak highly enough of her, she's a woman that loves the Lord and it radically follows him at his word. And a year and a half ago, I started to feel a tug in my heart. We were in Cedar Falls, right down the road. Loved Cedar Falls, loved Cedar Falls. Loved our church, loved our community, had an awesome friend group, but I started to feel this tug on my heart that we weren't supposed to stay in Cedar Falls. And I didn't know what that meant. So I started digging and searching, and a couple months later, we're in East Lansing, Michigan. <laughs> of all places, and I was like, you know what? Maybe we're supposed to go help be a part of a church plant. And if you know my wife, which some of you got the opportunity to meet her last week at the dating Q&A, she is a gentle spirit and is very soft-spoken, but she was quite outspoken in the fact that she said, hey, I don't want to leave. I love my family. Michigan is far from home. What's going to happen when we have kids? Who's going to watch them? like mine just starts racing but in that moment she said it's not comfortable but I trust you (laughs) and that did something within me that pointed me to Jesus in such an incredible way because it opened my eyes to see what it looks like to follow with sincere faith Ellie couldn't see the big picture. She couldn't see the answers to her questions, but she said, Jordan, I know that you love me and you have my best interests in mind and I trust you. So she said yes. Needless to say, God detoured us. Here we are in Cedar Rapids. Everybody wins. We got to go and Ellie got to stay close to home, but I got to see Jesus through my wife, living out this practical call of submission, which said, hey, I don't like it. I'm going to tell you my opinion, and at the end of the day, I'm going to trust you. So part of submission 
is headship. We see that in this text because verse 23 says the husband is the head of the wife. And where we can often go wrong here is thinking head means source or ultimate authority. And what Paul is teaching, his intention for the word head here actually means responsibility for. That changes everything. Jesus redefines what it looks like to be in a position of authority with responsibility for. You can find uh, one chunk in Matthew chapter 20 where the mother of the sons of Zebedee comes to Jesus and says, hey, I want my sons to sit at your left and your right in your kingdom. And Jesus pretty much says, you have no idea what you're asking for. (laughs) Because those that want to be great, I know that your society says if you want to be great, you lord it over people. But here's how authority and leadership works in the kingdom of God. If you want to be great, you're going to be a servant. And if you want to be first, you're going to be a slave. Because that's who the Son of God is. He came not to be served, but to serve, to lay his life down as a ransom for many. Jesus himself, fully God, fully man, says, this is what leadership looks like. So for the men in this room, understand that when the day comes that you get to be a husband, Lord willing, headship is not superiority. It is not privilege, and it is not dominance. Your role is to be responsible for your wife. That entails leadership. That entails sacrifice and a type of love that you have never experienced before outside of Christ. What's funny is, as we dig into this text, everybody always hears wives should submit to their husbands. Everybody in this room has probably heard that before. But what oftentimes gets missed is the bulk of this text is pointed at husbands. Because from a cultural standpoint, back when this was written, wives submitting to husbands was not something that caught anybody off guard. That was the way that the family structure worked. What's extremely controversial in this text is that there is a mutual submission now for husbands to not domineer over their wives, but to respond in a different way. Read with me in verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Men, your role as a husband is to love your wife as Christ loved the church. The word love here, many of you have probably heard it fleshed out before, the word agape. This is an unconditional love. It's not something that is stirred up within us that we act on emotion. Agape love is a matter of the mind and the heart. 
It's a willingness to choose to love the undeserving. It is self-denial for the sake of our wives, and it is love expressed through sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the only one to perfectly live this out and show us what it looks like. Because look at us. Who are we? We're not attractive. We have nothing to offer Jesus. But he laid his life down for us. He saw that we had nothing to offer and he says, you know what? I'm going to willingly choose to love the undeserving to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because I love them. What blows my mind is in Hebrews 12, we see this unpacking of Jesus' love for us, and it says that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured a cross and despised the shame. He didn't do it begrudgingly. Jesus didn't lay his life down begrudgingly. He did it joyfully. So, men, yeah, when you get to be a husband, it's not begrudgingly doing the dishes. <laughs> been there. Trust me, I've been sitting under this for a few weeks, and it's been hitting me hard. <laughs> it's not begrudgingly serving your wife. It's joyfully serving your wife, joyfully, sacrificially laying your life down for her. Why? We see that Jesus gave himself up for the church that he might sanctify us. The word means set apart. He might cleanse us, present us without spot or wrinkle or blemish that we would be holy. That is why Jesus did it. The joy in Jesus' heart was, would be that we would be a clean people, that we would be holy and in relationship with him. So no, husbands, you are not the savior. Only Jesus is the savior. You cannot save or cleanse your wife spiritually, but you can show her that she is set apart for you. And the way that you love her and serve her and lay your life down for her, you can show her that she is set apart. And you can take an interest in her spiritual well-being. You're called to, to care about her spiritual health. I was blown away in studying this text that uh, Jesus did this, we see with the motive in 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Man, oftentimes I sit here and I think about, holy cow, Jesus saved me so that like I would enjoy this great blessing, but Jesus is like, true, and I saved you so that I can cherish you. <laughs> we are Jesus's prize and his possession. So what does that mean for Husbands, two Proverbs that stick out. Proverbs 12.4 says, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Proverbs 31.10 says, an excellent wife is far more precious than jewels. Husbands, we get to show that, we get to show our wives that they're prized and that they're treasured. It's an incredible gift and it's designed to point us back to Christ and the church that they can see Jesus in the, in the way that we love and care for and sacrifice and invest in their spiritual health, we can show them that they are a prize possession. We continue on and see that we are members of God's body. 
verse 30. We are members of his body. And it's just crazy to me that Jesus would not only die on a cross and raise from the dead to draw us to, um, to himself, but he draws us so intimately to himself that he says we are part of his body. We become one with Christ. He gives us his spirit. We are one with Christ. And let me ask you this question. Would Jesus die on the cross, endure the cross, despise the shame, save you from your sin, and then leave you hanging? Not a chance. The promise is he will never leave us nor forsake us. And he's challenging the men. He's saying, just as I would never save you to forsake you, so you should never, ever stop caring for your wife because she is a member of your body. Love her as you would love yourself, even in the smallest things, how you nourish and cherish, how you take care of your own body, do the same for your wife. Give of yourself to pursue and promote her. These end up reaching a climax in verses 31 and 32. Paul writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul is looking back at Genesis 2, the beginning of time when God creates man and says, hey, man is desperate for help. Man should not be alone. So what does he do? He puts Adam into a deep sleep, he pulls a rib from him, and he creates Eve, a suitable helper. And then he says, the two shall become one flesh. God creates marriage. And what Paul sees is crazy. He says, I am seeing the fact that God didn't just send Jesus to save the church and then think, oh, marriage is a good way to explain this. God had Jesus Christ and the church in mind when he created marriage. Before there was an incarnate embodied Christ or a redeemed church, he created man and woman and marriage to say, this is gonna point you to Jesus. This mystery is profound the meaning of marriage is to point us to Christ in the church. And what we need to understand is that as we minimize or confuse roles within marriage, we're obscuring the meaning. We're missing the meaning of marriage. This great parable of marriage points us to Christ in the church, and as we switch our roles, we're obscuring the meaning of marriage. We see in verse 33, he says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husbands. So I'll finish by saying, men, when you get the day to be a husband, Lord willing, your role is to love, lead, nourish, and protect your wife like Christ did the church. And women, when you get the opportunity to be wives, Lord willing, your role is to love and honor your husband. Joining him on mission for Christ. 
Marriage is created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. And that will create some tension because chances are there are those of us in this room that are in dating relationships or are interested in someone of the opposite sex that has no idea who Jesus is or wants nothing to do with who Jesus is. And my challenge to you is that if you don't know Jesus or you're not willing to follow Jesus, living on mission for Jesus, embodying this great picture of Christ in the church is going to be increasingly difficult and in my opinion, impossible. You, even if you were to get married outside the context of Christ and you stayed married for 70 years, you would miss out on the greatest joy of marriage because you're missing the meaning. You're living for yourself and not for Christ. And with that comes a lack of staying power because when you're focused on yourself, your relationship is contractual. We talk, Ellie and I talked about that last week in the Q&A. It's all about what can I can get, how can they measure up, and if they don't measure up, why don't I go to somebody else? But as your focus is on Christ and living on mission with him, you get to understand that you're two imperfect people trying to point people to Jesus. And it's a beautiful thing. All right, we're gonna transition First comes love, then comes marriage. Then comes the baby and the baby carriage, right? Paul transitions uh, in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul is talking, when he's talking to children, he's talking to young children. We see that in verse 4 because he's talking about training them up. And I don't see any toddlers in the room. So I'm going to say, first and foremost, you've been disobedient to your parents. Because I've been a child and I've disobeyed my parents. I don't care who your parents are, where they've been, what they've done. Uh, We see in this passage that it's right for us to obey our parents. And again, remember, we're under the authority of God in heaven, so you're submissive first and foremost to God's authority, but if your parents ever told you to do the dishes and you said no, guess what? That's not right. It doesn't belong in your life. If your parents told you to go to bed or to meet curfew and you didn't do it, guess what? It's wrong. It has, it has no place in the Christian life. You've been disobedient as a child. And my challenge to you would be to confess. I don't know if you've ever done that before. Maybe your parents don't even know Jesus. What would it look like for you to confess and say, hey, I just realized how disobedient I was as a child to you, and I wanted to say I'm sorry. Beyond that, we have to move forward to verse 2, which says, honor your father and mother, which does not come with an age limit. Honor your father and mother. This looks like forgiving them, speaking well of them, seeking their wisdom, supporting them emotionally and spiritually, and the day will come where you are going to probably charge with the task of providing for them, physically, maybe financially. Be people that honor your parents. 
Again, this is not controversial in their culture. Children were expected to obey their parents, but what is unique is now the charge to parents, which says, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. Man, when we get to be parents someday, we get the chance to break some probably generational sin that's been carried down time and time again. And if you have had an angry parent, I'm sorry, but you have the chance someday, if you are a parent, to break the chain. You get the chance to be the one to do it differently. And the charge is twofold. Don't provoke your children. Don't be unkind or be overcritical. Provoking them, stirring them up to be angry at you. No, discipline and instruct. It's, it's this double-edged sword of teaching them what they did wrong. Discipline is good. But don't just tell them what they did wrong. Show them why it's wrong and tell them what to do that's right. And where we get this is from the word of God. We get to show someday children what it looks like to live for the Lord. It consists of both living in God's word with your children and living out God's word in front of your children. And man, I have to ask the question, if you're not doing, if you're not living in God's word or living out God's word, now is a great time to start. Don't wait till you have kids to try and figure it out. Because <laughs> then you're getting less sleep and there's way more chaos going on around you. Start figuring it out. <clears throat> Verses five through nine is bond servants and masters. It says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him." So the word bondservants is probably going to trip us up unless we know what a bondservant is. Bondservants in Greco-Roman times were slaves, not to be confused with the broken, screwed up, sinful, messed up way of American slavery. So do not let your mind run there. When you hear the word slave, do not fight against the urge of the temptation to run there. Greco-Roman slavery looked drastically different. It was considered economic and a practical necessity to the point of one-third of all people being a bondservant. One, shape, one way, shape, or form, one-third of all people were considered slaves. And these slaves could own property, they could own other bondservants, and they could earn money, save money, and even buy their freedom. There was no racial class. There was no educational class. They weren't even their own social subclass. It was just who they were. So within our context, the best way to understand it from a contemporary standpoint is employees. 
think employees in our day and age. So this is talking to employees and bosses today as much as it was bond servants and masters then. Employees. In this room, I even think, what's your occupation? Many of us are students. What are we supposed to do? It says, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Uh, a better translation would be within our context, thinking through the words of, excuse me, humble submission and respect. So it's not this actual like being terrified of who they are. It's humble submission and respect. Respecting people that have authority over you. Having a sincere heart as you would Christ and working with integrity. I love that the text says I service. And the way I've seen this lived out is by answering a simple question. Any employees in the room? Anybody working a part-time job? Or, Ooh, yeah, lots. I like it. Okay, my question is, if you're working and your boss walks in the room, what changes? I was asked that question about a year ago today, and it beat me up. It chewed me up and spit me out. Because the, question, the answer to the question was, I worked a lot different when my boss was in the room. What if I told you that you weren't just working for your earthly boss, you were working for your master in heaven? Guess what? He's watching. And you have the opportunity to use your time and your talents to worship him. It's not this begrudging task that you have to do. Your work is worship to God. He cares about how you work. He cares about how you serve your earthly masters, but ultimately, you have to understand that you are working for the living God. It's incredible. And masters in this time now are faced with this extremely countercultural charge. Do the same. <laughs> uh, yeah, do the same, which is respect your slaves. Uh, it is have a sincere heart and have integrity. Treat them as you would treat the Lord. Incredible. Masters are to recognize their equality with bondservants before the one who is master of them both. It's this idea of, man, as we look at Jesus as the master, it humbles all of us. We all become slaves at the foot of the cross. What we need to know tonight as we, as we look through these relationships, marriage, parenting, being a child, being an employee or being a boss, we see, sorry, that your relationship with Jesus changes every relationship you have. I'll say it again. Your relationship with Jesus changes every relationship you have. And Jesus is not only our why, in verse 21 of chapter 5, we see, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We see who Jesus is, how big and beautiful he is, the fact that he paid the price for us. He is our why. Man, as we looked through all of these different roles, it says, yeah, submit as to the Lord. Have a sincere heart as to the Lord. Our view of who Jesus is shapes our obedience, so that's our why. 
but Jesus is also our how. So if you leave here tonight and you try and muster up the strength, good luck. You're going to fail. I promise you that. But the sweet and beautiful promise that we find in verse 18 of chapter 5, which Nathan covered last week, is this be filled with the Spirit. So Nathan talked about the beginning of the verse where it says, do not be drunk, but be empowered by the Spirit. Submission is out of an overflow of being filled with the Spirit. The only one to live a perfectly submissive life died on a cross, rose from the dead, and said, if you believe in me, I'll give you my spirit. The same spirit that allowed me to live a perfect life, the same spirit that rose me from the dead, can live inside you. So, stop trying to muster up your own strength. Believe in the one who has perfectly submitted. God is so gracious to us, you guys. When we didn't deserve it, he paid the price for us. So guess what? You don't have to prove yourself. It's not about your status or you being head honcho. It's not about you being right in an argument. God has already given you your identity. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't need a good spouse to be a good spouse. You don't need good parents to be a good child. Someday you won't need good children to be a good parent. You don't need a good boss to be a good employee, and someday if you get to be a boss, you don't need good employees to be a good boss. Because you have the power of Christ within you. Every relationship we have is an opportunity to glorify and grow in Christ. So as I think about what it would look like if we actually left here and put this in practice, here are some tangible things that might take place. Man, looking forward, I'm blown away at the fact that we could have a ton of God-honoring marriages. As I look out at this crowd, I'm encouraged to think about how many of you may have the opportunity to be a God-fearing wife, a God-fearing husband, a God-fearing parent, raising up the next generation for the sake of the gospel. That looks like healthy dating today. So if you're dating, I need you to ask the question, what is my relationship doing for the sake of the kingdom? Because if I'm a Christian, my relationships are designed to point me to Christ and the church. As children in the room, what would it look like for us to confess and repent to parents and to move forward honoring them even if they've wronged us, even if we've been hurt by them, what would it look like to honor them and display the gospel to them because we've been, on, we've been the undeserving ones? Said it earlier, what would it look like to be in the Bible, to be discipling other people? If you're going to be charged with the task of training up a child in the instruction of the Lord someday, why wait? Get in the word now. Learn it. Live it. Do it with somebody else. And then as I think about your schoolwork or your work, be a person of integrity. 
Don't begrudgingly look at your task at hand and say, oh, look at all the studying I have to do. Say, no, this is an incredible opportunity for me to learn about Jesus and glorify Jesus in the way that I study for a test. You have that opportunity in front of you. We can more properly and powerfully worship Jesus as we take on humility. As we place ourselves under authority, his ultimate authority, and see every relational touch point as an opportunity to point people to Jesus. Amen? Pray with me. Yeah, Father, you are so good to us. You are so gracious to us to send your son, Jesus. While we were still sinners, Christ, you died for us. And you rose again to set us apart as a holy people. God, would we live in light of the identity that you have gifted to us as chosen and beloved children? And would we willingly submit to those around us? Would we live out the submission that you modeled perfectly as you prayed to your Father in heaven, not, your will, not my will, but your will be done? Jesus, we need you. We need your spirit inside us to live out this obedience. I pray this in your name. Amen.